Let's open our Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Today we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 14 as we continue our series called The Spirit and the Church, all about the work of God in his people for the spread of the gospel. Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word. We need it. We depend upon it for the knowledge of you, the knowledge of ourselves, the knowledge of life as you want us to live it. We pray, God, that you would enlighten us, give us understanding, and that you would encourage us to respond with belief and obedience, repentance wherever is necessary. Pray, Lord, that you would bless us as a church as we seek to follow Jesus throughout 2022. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Part of the reason why we're looking at the book of Acts, part of the reasons, one of the reasons, is because as a church, uh, having existed for 14 years, uh, going, coming up on 15, we really wanted to revisit in a sustained way what God calls the church to be and to do and what it ought to look like in our everyday lives. It's not that we've neglected this before, but it's important for us to revisit this. We are, we're looking forward, not just where we're at now, we're looking ahead. What are we going to do and how are we going to live as faithful disciples throughout this year and into the future? What is God calling us to be and to do? Now, when you have those kind of questions, and those are the good questions to have as a church, when you have those kind of questions, one of the first things that pastors and leadership likes to do, they like to do, they like to go online and, uh, and they search for uh, church consultants and gurus and they, they've, they've, they buy a program or some sort of way in which they can get to the next level, right? In fact, the most common popular help or aid out there is breaking the 200 barrier, that's how you have to say it. Breaking the 200 barrier. And this is an ad or a, a product. It's an ad for a product, but it's a, it's a product. It's a curriculum. It's a, it's a video series. It's teaching. It's resources that are all aimed at helping churches grow numerically and get beyond the 200 barrier. And it's called the 200 barrier because most churches are 100 people or less on average on a Sunday. And by the time you get to 200, to sustain that and to continue to grow, you have to make certain system changes because ministering and existing, ministering to a people and existing within a congregation of over 200 is just different than it is a church of 75. So you've got these products out there, these services, these programs, and they focus on things like systems and management and, and, and staffing and all these things. And those are important things. They're not bad things. I'm not making fun of the need to address those issues. But what I am bothered by is that in all of these programs, and I've looked at a lot, uh, I don't see things like prayer. I don't see a thing like a call to theological fidelity. I don't see things like the importance and the priority of gospel grounded unity. Because the truth is, is you can, with the right measures and, and, and procedures and systems, you can grow a gathering. 
But we don't just want to grow a gathering. We want to be a faithful church, disciples on mission who are reaching the lost, growing spiritually in wisdom and in faith and numerically as we see the unconverted come to Jesus. So in other words, we're looking forward to what's next. We're looking forward to what God's going to do in us and through us this year and in the future. And that calls for unity and prayer. In fact, that's the, the theme I want us to run with today as we're looking at these verses. Unity and prayer prepares us for the work of God in us and through us. There is a real sense in which preparation is important for us to be really ready for what's next. Unity, gospel unity, and prayer is what prepares us for the work of God in us and through us. And so first, I want us to look at the the unity of hope that we're supposed to have as God's people. Look again at verse 12. It says, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. So they were just, they just had a meeting with Jesus, right? They just had a meeting with Jesus. And uh, we'll talk about that again in just a minute. And they're they're, really, they're on their, their, their way to Jerusalem. Now this, they're on the Mount of, of Olives. And this is a place that Jesus spent a fair bit of time, right? It, we think mountain, it's not like a mountain, right? In the, in the sense that some of us might think it's not a giant mountain. It, it's like a giant hill, little mountain. That's what it is. Uh, it's a high peak of, above uh, Jerusalem. And so people would go there for various reasons. And Jesus went there oftentimes to teach or to even get alone by himself, in fact, the Mount of Olives, which is where they were, right? The Mount of Olives, this, is, um, this was the place Jesus was at three times on, uh, during the week of his betrayal and arrest, right? So his last week of ministry, like formal ministry, he went there. This is where the, triumph- the triumphal entry of Jesus on the donkey he comes in in Luke 19, right? People like to make way, prepare the way for the Lord. Matthew 24, we have what's a record of the, what's called the Olivet Discourse, right? So this is the teaching that he did out there on the Mount of Olives. And then, of course, in Luke 22, after Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, he celebrated the Passover with his disciples, right? He goes, he leaves the upper room, and he goes to the Mount of Olives to pray. And he prays, and he seeks the Father, and he, he's relying upon the, 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 the will of the Father. That's where he says, if this cup can pass... Because Jesus is stressed. He's feeling the burden, the weight of sacrificing his life to redeem fallen humanity. He's feeling that. And he says, if there's any way this cup can pass, let it pass. But not my will, but your will be done. That's where that happens. And that's where he's arrested, is the Mount of Olives. So that's where they're coming from, the Mount of Olives. And they're heading to Jerusalem. Why? Why are they going to Jerusalem? We talked about this recently when we looked at Acts chapter 1, 4, and 5. Like Jesus tells them, I, I, I want you to go to Jerusalem and stay put and wait because the Holy Spirit is going to be sent to you. You're going to receive the Holy Spirit. You're going to be charged, changed, indwelt. You're going to be sent out. So I just need you to go there and wait. Now, this waiting for the Holy Spirit sounds like it might be a new thing. And oftentimes we talk about this. Oh, the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, it's a new thing. They had no idea about this. Well, that's a whole theological concept that we're going to get into as we go through the book of Acts about how the Holy Spirit was at work in the saints during the Old Testament era or the Old Covenant, and the Holy Spirit was active. But there are differences. However, the promise of the blessing of of the prevalence and the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant has been promised to God's people for centuries. 
They've been waiting for it. It's not like this was a new concept that they had never heard of when Jesus shows up and then shortly before his ascension, he goes, don't worry, I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit. They weren't like, what's that? They were like, finally, really, this is going to happen? Over and over again, in, 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 the, in the Old Testament, you see this promise. Oh, in the new covenant, I'm gonna put my spirit within you. I'm gonna cause you to walk in my ways. You see it in Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31. You see it in Joel, Joel chapter two. Listen to Joel 2, uh, 28 and 29. And it shall come to pass afterwards that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. So in the old covenant, looking forward, they're saying, listen, in the new covenant, there's gonna come a day when my spirit will be poured out on all people. It won't just be a ministry of the Holy Spirit in dramatic form for prophets and kings, but it will be for all all of my people, from those that the world would deem insignificant and small to those that get all of the attention and stand up on a pedestal, everybody will have the access, full access to the Spirit. The Spirit will indwell all of God's people. So that's what they've been waiting for. And so now they're told, go ahead and, uh, and wait some more. Now, why are, they, why are they waiting? Why doesn't Jesus just be like, are you ready? I'm getting ready to go and like do like a relay like Holy Spirit comes down tags Jesus Jesus goes up why why another few days well we're not exactly told um, why there is is a wait but I do think it's tied up in this idea of dependency and preparation preparation is an idea I want you to keep in mind uh, today he wants them to wait yeah I want you to go and wait Jesus says just go and wait and they're going to go and they're going to pray. Why this ongoing delay? I believe it is, and we'll talk about this, it is to prepare themselves for what's next. And to learn absolute dependency on God. You see, by saying wait and the Holy Spirit will come, it's communicating to them, you cannot do what I've charged you to do. And Jesus has already charged us, right? He's already said, I want you to, you're going to be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the whole earth. He's like, you're going to go into all of the world and make disciples. So he's already charged them. But he says, but you got to wait because you can't do it without the spirit. So be still and wait. So it's about preparation and it's, and it's about dependency. They're learning dependency in this very moment, which is good for us, right? This is good for us because as we, as a church, and this is true for every church, but we're looking ahead, we're looking forward. We wanna be faithful and healthy now, as faithful, as faithful and healthy as we can be. And we're looking forward and we're seeing like, okay, what is it going to look like as we're improving and, and growing and maturing? We have an anticipation for, for what's coming next. Like we have a shared hope. See, this, they're united in, in a hope here. What's uniting them in their hope is like God is going to be at work in us and through us, and now we just need to wait for the empowerment of the Spirit. And this is something that every church should have, right? Oh, wow, God has said that he will use us, he will work in us and through us to be his witnesses in the world, but let's start with right where we're at. So let's wait expectantly for it, lean into it, look for it, and be ready for whatever God does do next. So they're united in hope. In verse 13, we see that their unity is one of faith. They're united in faith, in, in the gospel, in the truth of God. And you see this just based on the people that are listed, right? Because it says, and when they had entered, they went to the upper room. Let's just clear that up for a minute. The upper room, not an upper room, not 
Not one uh, upper, but the upper room. In other words, this is the one. This is the same upper room that, uh, that Jesus had the Passover meal with, uh, his disciples. This is the place where he instituted the Lord's Supper. This is the place where they had been staying. And if you're not familiar, the, an upper room, or the upper room in this case, is, is this a large like hall. It's a place where, it's a place like about this size probably, right? Where you could, you could gather in a, a couple hundred people together just to, to fellowship or to rest, to sleep, to pray. So here they are. They entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying, right? And then we have the list of disciples, Peter, John, James, and so forth. And if you know anything about the disciples, it helps you to appreciate the kind of unity that we're supposed to have in the church and that we do see in the early church. Because what do we have? We have Peter. By the way, Peter's always listed first in the lists of the apostles. He's always listed first because he was kind of important. He was a leader among leaders. But he didn't start off like that. Like Peter was a fisherman. Peter was a blue-collar guy. Peter had rough hands. And, uh, and as, as a fisherman, as, as a tradesman who was married, you know, he had a regular life until Jesus stepped in and said, you're going to follow me. And so he starts following Jesus, and his whole life is changed, and he becomes a leader among leaders. So you've got Peter listed. You've got John. This is the John that wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And... Revelation, which we just spent a whole year going through, right? That's the John. Now, you have Peter, you have John, and you have James. Now, these three are listed together. And the reason these three are listed together is because these are the three that were tightest with Jesus, right? Jesus was tight with the 12, but he spent, he seemed to have a closer kind of practical relationship with these three. Now, James is the brother of John. And John and James were called the sons of thunder, which sounds like an ACDC song. It might be. But the point is, is that these were guys who were bold, loud, confrontational, zealous, amped. They weren't, let's just say they weren't chill. They weren't chill people. Uh, they, were, they were amped up and loud. And you see this reflected even in, in some of the accounts that we have of these guys. We're going to read about James in Acts 12 when they cut his head off for preaching the gospel and telling the truth. Andrew, Andrew is Peter's brother, but he's way down here. Peter, you would think, like John and James, where's Peter's brother? Down the list, here he is. Because Andrew, and, and this is, and a lot of scholars make this argument, Andrew was never a guy that made a big deal about his relationship with his brother, who was admittedly a big deal in the church. Andrew was comfortable just being Andrew. He was crucified. As an apostle, he died on a cross, but it wasn't a cross that you would expect. It was a, in fact, the tradition says, we don't know if this is true, but tradition says, he said, I don't deserve, I'm not worthy of being hung on a cross that Jesus hung on. Uh, and so they, they used a, what they call an X-shaped cross. So it looked like a giant X and he would be crucified on that. That's why if you ever see St. Andrew's cross, it's an X, it's in the shape of that letter. Philip is listed. Philip grew up in Peter's neighborhood, so he was a part of that crew, probably a fisherman. We're not really sure. Thomas, you all know who that is. Thomas is the one who doubted. Man, if I was known for, like, my big blunder, if that was my nickname, I, I would be kind of bummed out about it, right? Uh, like, graduated second to last in high school Joe is not a good nickname. I don't want that nickname. I, I would just, just I, I'd rather it be... Published author Joe. That would be better, right? That would be nice. But if you were more like tiny books that don't sell very much, 
published author Joe. Like that's not his, that's not the thing. Thomas is called Doubting Thomas because after the resurrection of Christ, when he heard eyewitness testimony from the women who were there, people are telling like, listen, Jesus is risen. And Thomas was like, I just can't accept it. I will not believe it until I see him. And it's not enough for me to see him. I got to touch him. And it's not enough for me to touch him. I want to put my hand in the hole that's in the side of his body where the spear went in. And of course he does. Jesus condescends to let him do that. He does it, and then he worships my Lord and my God. Truth is, is Thomas wasn't a man who lacked faith. He was just honest. He struggled to believe like all of us. And God kindly condescends to help him to believe. Bartholomew, obviously a rich guy obviously a rich guy. Nobody names your kid Bartholomew unless you've got money. And Bartholomew probably did have money. That's the thing. Is uh, A lot of scholars argue, like, this is, we don't have a lot of information on some of these disciples, but like, yeah, this guy maybe even was royalty, but probably from upper class, had some dough, or his parents had some dough. That's this kind of guy, so had some wealth. But then you got Matthew, who is a tax collector. Matthew is, um, is a Jew, but he's, uh, he's a Jew that is hated by most other Jews because he works for the Roman government. You see, we, you tend to think of like, well, Israel, Israel, that was their land. God gave it to them. Yeah, but at this time in history, Rome ruled over everything. And so they allowed the Jews to live there, but under Roman control. And so they needed people to collect taxes. So Matthew was one of those tax collectors, a Jewish guy that took money from his Jewish brothers and sisters and gave it to the Roman government. And what was typical of these tax collectors, because they were kind of shady, is they would bump up the tax rate and then take up all the extra for themselves and then pay off Rome. They were viewed as thieves. They were viewed as some of the worst in society. And tax collectors were frequently listed with people in, our, in their society that were seen as the lowest of the low. They were criminals and ungodly but he's one. This is one that Jesus called to himself. And there comes Matthew. You've got James, the son of Alphaeus. We don't know a lot about this James. It, there, there are differences of opinion as to who he might be. And maybe it's the author of James, but isn't that the brother of Jesus? And people get into, we just don't always know. In fact, here's the thing. Some of these disciples we know a lot about, and some of them we don't know very much about. And that's just how it works in the kingdom, isn't it? Sometimes you, you learn about some people, you don't learn about other people. And it's not that one person is better than another, it's just you know more of the story of some people than you do others. But these were all faithful, godly people. Simon the Zealot, Simon the Zealot, he was a radical. I mean, a radical in every way that you would think of it. He was a radical, he's a politically minded radical. He was a person, he's the opposite of Matthew, right? The tax collector, because Simon the Zealot, he, he was a person that believed that, that the Roman occupation of their land was, was awful. It was an evil, and they needed to overthrow the, the, the Roman government. They, they were, listen, they were open to violence, uh, guerrilla warfare, whatever it took to take back. So you've got one guy among the disciples who is like a company man for Rome, total sellout, and you've got another guy among the disciples who is like, nah, I'm ready to die to take down the government. All on the same team. Then you got Judas, not that Judas. That should be his nickname, Judas, not that Judas. Because it's Judas, the son of James, not that Judas, the one that betrayed Jesus. In fact, again, we're not exactly sure who this is, but some scholars believe, well, this Judas is the one who wrote Jude. So maybe that helps you to kind of figure out, okay, so maybe there's a connection there. 
But these are the disciples named, right? There's 11, not 12, because Judas, that Judas, is out, like he's gone. But then the women are also noted, right? The women are also noted in verse 14, right? Because you can see, oh, they were with one accord, devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, of course, there were women because there were always men and women following Jesus. They're not just mentioning women, they're mentioning the women, the ones that people know that have been following the story, people that have been, you know, reading the gospel accounts and they know, like, oh, okay, so we're talking about Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Susanna, the, the people that we see in the book of Acts. These were some of the first eyewitnesses of, of, of the resurrected Christ. These were, these were women that supported the ministry of the church and these missionaries early with their own salaries and, and the money that they accumulated. These women were vital to the health of the church. So the women were there. And this is before the diaconate or the deacons were established, so there weren't really proper roles for everybody yet. And there were many others. Mary. This is the last mention of Mary, Jesus' mom. Mentioned here, not again. And his brothers. If you're wondering, I had somebody ask. Jesus had half-brothers, right? Because Joseph and Mary did come together and have offspring after Jesus was born. So Jesus had half-brothers, same mom, different dad, if you know what I'm saying, right? It's the whole father, conception, Christ from the womb, but he had half-brothers like James. Now, what is it that unites all these people? Because they're all different. They're very different. They're not the same. They're socially different. They're politically different. They're even at odds with each other. You got rich and poor, blue collar, white collar. You know, you got fancy, you got ordinary. You've got conservative, you got liberal. You got these people that are like coming together. What's keeping them from imploding? What's keeping them from tearing each other apart? Try to get 20 people together. You ever do a group project in school? They're the worst. I would just rather take the F. I'll, I'll pass. No, thank you. It, 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 you get people together and there is just in, instant difficulty because we are all different. Unless you somehow just, in God's providence, wind up with a few people that are just like you. Then you get along fine until you don't like something about yourself that you see in them. And then you have trouble. What keeps them all together? It's not their affinity. It's not their shared affinity and interest. It's not their activism. What is it that keeps them together? Their unity is found in their faith and in their love, in what they believe and in how they see and treat one another. Faith and love. Not their faith like, oh, because we have a belief, that's what unifies us. It's not that. It's the object of their faith. Jesus, the gospel, the truth of the gospel. That's what unifies them because it transcends all of the other nonsense or decent things in the world. Transcends all of that. This is what makes them one. Faith and Love, Ephesians chapter four, just to give you a couple of examples. Ephesians chapter four, starting in verse one, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Why do you think Paul has to exhort us to bear with one another? Because y'all have issues. I have issues. Like, that's why we have to bear with one another in love, not tolerate one another. That's easier. But to bear with one another in love, to show compassion and interest and kindness, to overlook faults, or to help people cor be corrected when they, when they need it. 
We're supposed to bear with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. That's what unites them, their faith. They can disagree, they can argue, they can bicker, and you see that in the book of Acts. But oh, what ultimately unites them and brings them together and heals them is their faith, and not just their faith, but also the call to love. You cannot, you cannot have a church that is healthy. You can have a church break the 200 barrier without love, but it's not going to be a healthy church. You have to have the faith once for all delivered to the saints, and love. Colossians chapter 3, verse 14 says, and above all, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Listen, you can have the right doctrine, you can have the right faith objectively, right? you can have it articulated, you can put it all together, like look at that, boom, good doctrine, got the gospel right, this is what we're all supposed to be about. But if you take love out of it, what is that? It's a piece of paper is all that it is. Because real faith, faith in the truth, our dependency on Christ is supposed to give birth to real love. This is why Paul says, listen, I can, I can know all the wisdom. I, 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 can, I can speak with, with, with the tongues of angels. I can, I can make the greatest sacrifices. If I don't have love, it's all meaningless. So we need love. First Peter uh, chapter 3, one more. First Peter chapter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Have this unity in the faith and love. We learn this from Christ. Love, don't we? We learn this from Christ. We love because God first loved us. We love God because he loved us and in his love demonstrated in the sacrifice of Christ, we are born again with a love for him but it doesn't end there because now because we are remade in his image, we learn now to love the people that he has made and even more than that, we love the people that he has remade in his image, those brothers and sisters who are ours. So we see here in the early church, they were united in hope, united in faith, and they were united in prayer. Look at verse 14. It says, I read it already. Let's do it again. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Why are they praying? Right, because it's, it, it's, it's, it's a good question. I think it's a good question. I was like, yeah, why are they praying? They already know what's gonna happen. Jesus told them, uh, you're gonna go chill, uh, wait, and then in a few days, the Holy Spirit's gonna fall on you, and then you gotta get going. okay. So then why pray? Why wait? We talked about this at the beginning, remember? They're praying to prepare themselves for what's next. Because what's next is beyond themselves. They're probably praying for their faith. They're probably praying for their usefulness. They're probably praying for their unity and the spread of the gospel and God's glory. They're probably praying about these things because these are the things that Paul prays for the church in all of his letters. Thessalonians, Ephesians. These are the things churches, healthy churches, pray for. Our own faith and growth, our usefulness, our unity, love, spread of the gospel, and God's glory. 
See, what God's called us to is beyond us. It's for us, but it's beyond us. So we must be prepared. We must be prepared for what God is about to do, what he's gonna call us to, so that we can properly depend upon him. And they are devoted to prayer, right? Devoted, right? This means that they are given to it. This is their normal. It's not weird. It's not awkward. Well, it's probably awkward. You get a bunch of people together and pray. It's always gonna get a little awkward, right? That's fine. That's normal. That's family. Family gets awkward sometimes, but it's normal. It's real. This is disciplined, consistent, normal, religious practice for them. They prayed. It mattered. It was important to them. And that bears fruit. You're going to see this in the book of Acts, the relationship between prayer and the work of God. But they do it together. They do it together, not just as individuals. I'll come back to that in just a minute. See, earlier in the series, I said something like, um, oftentimes, before God does something big, he calls us to wait. Related to that, prayer often precedes a great work of God. Prayer often precedes a great work of God. In that it is a pleading with God to do what only he can do, and in praying, we are preparing ourselves for whatever God is about to do. Before almost every historical revival that we can read about, prayer preceded it. God's people praying, gathering, crying out for God to revive their hearts and the, the, the churches that had grown cold and lost the gospel. We see it throughout history. We'll see it in the book of Acts. Prayer often precedes a great work of God. So what are we praying for this year? What are we looking forward to? Revival of our hearts, evangelism, growth? Then pray together. Because unity in prayer is what prepares us for the work of God in us and through us. So, what is next for us as Redeemer Fellowship? We want to reach the lost. It's always cool. It's always exciting when somebody says, hey man, I'm new in town or I need a church and I'm a Christian. I'm already down with Jesus and I'm like to join Redeemer. That's sweet. We love that. We love finding like-minded believers who want to partner with us. That's a win. That's great. Redeemer is a great church. It's not a great fit for everybody, but for those who find it to be a good fit, it's exciting. But what we need to be really excited about and aiming towards is preaching the gospel to those who don't know Jesus and calling them to faith and repentance. What needs to be our passion, our burden, and our practice is evangelism that, by the grace of God, will lead to conversions. We need to see conversion growth. Not because we need to be anything, but because we want to be faithful. We want to be faithful. We want to be a part of God's work in making disciples and reaching the nations. And that for us begins here. So yes, we want to reach the lost. We want to grow in our faith. We want to grow in our godliness. We need to experience personal revival. We need God to bring a lot of us out of of our spiritual coldness and apathy. So we seek it. And if we're going to seek it, we have to seek it together. And this will require some waiting and some praying. But all of this is only possible if we have real unity in the church. So we do this, right? How do we do this? How do we seek this together? We, you know, because that won't just happen. You actually have to look for practical ways to do this. So you should, you should, I hope you can, find a small group. We call them community groups. Find one, plug in, try some out. You know, not every community group is as awesome as the one I'm a part of. But uh, you know, they're all awesome. They're all different, though. And so you find one that's a good fit, right? You find one that, like, oh, this is, uh, 
These are, these are people that I, I, I feel, I could just talk to these people. We have the same faith and everything's good. Find a community group because there you will be praying, you will be seeking the Lord. You can join a discipleship group, which is a smaller thing. Just men or just women. Going deeper into your lives. You, you, can, um, you can join the women's ministry. They're doing Bible study together, studying, studying this issue of unity in the context of friendship this year. You can join the men's ministry. You could, you could just meet with other Christians as well that are a part of the church, but you've got to find uh, people around which uh, you can seek the Lord, with which you can prepare for whatever is next. Yeah, unity and prayer. You're not going to sell a program. You're not going to set a program around it. Um, maybe people aren't Googling unity and prayer. Um, for their churches as much as how to break the 200 barrier. But I know this, that for Redeemer to be the church God calls us to be, and for us to be the people I know we want to be, then we will have to strive to maintain, and I think you guys are doing a great job, strive to maintain unity in the gospel. That's what keeps us sane and together. And we need to strive together in prayer as we prepare for whatever God's about to do next. Let's look forward and hope. Father in heaven, we're grateful for every good thing that you have given us and we ask that we would never lose sight of the fact that these gifts are connected to our Savior. Whether it's a place to worship or a meal to eat, Lord, we are grateful for all of these things because we know that these are given to us from the hand of a Father to whom we've been reconciled through Jesus. But above all of that, Lord, above all of that is the forgiveness of sins and eternal life and the family of faith. We're grateful that you've allowed us to be brothers and sisters in one church. We're grateful, Lord, that you have done something great. We celebrate all that you have done and we look forward to what you will do in the future. We pray, Lord, that you would equip us to be a vital part of it all. In Jesus' name, amen.